The European Green Deal is very clear. We want to shift a substantial share of goods transported on the road today onto railways or waterways as more sustainable modes of transport. And that's really a necessity because we don't have in the short term uh, zero emission vehicles for heavy goods on the road. They will become available one day, no doubt, but today they don't exist. This is On the Right Track, a Florence School of Regulation podcast series dedicated to the European Year of Rail. I am Juan Montero, professor at the Florence School of Regulation Transport Area. In this series, I have the pleasure of speaking to experts across the railway industry on various regulatory topics on the smart and sustainable single European railway area. Hello, this is the first podcast of our series on the European Year of Rail uh, 2021. We have the pleasure to have a conversation with Elizabeth Werner, Director of Land Transport in the European Commission. Now, uh, this is a perfect opportunity for us uh, to understand the need and why this initiative of the European Year of Rail started, as this is um, a declaration of the um, European Parliament uh, after a proposal by the European Commission. So, Elizabeth, I, I would like to know why did the Commission um, proposed to have a European uh, Year of Rail, and why now? So the, the idea for a European Year of Rail has many fa mothers and fathers. And when we started discussing this idea back in 2019, we immediately noticed a lot of enthusiasm. In fact, everyone liked this idea very much. There have been several European years in the past, but we never had one on a topic such as railways. And it fits, of course, extremely well with our idea of a Green Deal, of a more sustainable future, and in light of the big challenges that we have in decarbonizing transport, we felt that this could really give a boost to railways. The Commission made the legal proposal in March last year, very, very shortly, very few days before the COVID lockdowns started. And it is true that there was a moment when we were hesitating whether that timing would still be right, whether in the middle of the pandemic um, it would be the right moment to not only celebrate rail and, and see all the positive sides of rail, but of course also talk about the challenges that remain to get the full potential out of railway. I'm glad now that we didn't do this because I still think that there is an enormous appetite and an enormous enthusiasm among the stakeholders and hopefully very soon also people will be able to travel again and can go back to using railways for not only their daily commutes, but also for their holidays. Yeah, that's what we are all expecting. Uh, in terms of specific initiative or, or activities, what can we expect uh, in this year? We deliberately choose a format that is very open. We would like to talk about railway outside our usual interlocutors specialists in railways or people working in railways and really carry that message to the broader public but also to the business community at large. Um, and we would 
in the end, of course, our measurement will be to hopefully get more passengers and more freight onto railways. But how to do this um, has to be seen depending on the different points of interest. And we can talk about jobs in railways. We can talk about innovation in railways with a lot of exciting projects, uh, hydrogen trains, um, electronic ticketing, automatic coupling. We can talk about historic legacy of railways, the role it played in industrialization in Europe and the rich cultural heritage it left behind. We can talk about connectivity, how it links different regions. We can talk about tourism, opening up new destination. Um, we will, of course, talk about our classic investment and infrastructure. And we will no doubt also talk about long lasting questions of capacity of interoperability, but more in the sense of how we can overcome them so that rail can shed some of the negative perceptions and really appear as something safe, something sustainable, something future oriented that can help us in achieving our objectives of a mobility that is in line with our environmental objectives. So really there is no limit to the angles, uh, to the types of topics, to the projects, conferences, subjects that we want to discuss. But the overall objective will be to say, rail has potential, let's use it. So you just referred to um, um, sustainability, to the um, environmental aspect and um, benefits of railways. Um, they just published in the Commission the Rail Market Monitor, which is a, a great document with a lot of very interesting information. One of the, of the uh, pieces of information that I um, liked the most was this reference to the percentage of um, uh, greenhouse emissions um, that rail represents in the total of transport in Europe, which is just 0.4%. Um, so that definitely um, railways has a potential to deliver in, in the Green Deal and the evolution to a cleaner uh, environment. Um, if we talk about passengers, um, what specific initiatives do you think we should pursue to, uh, to get this model shift in passengers? Um, there are lots of discussions about night services. Uh, there are discussions about substituting uh, uh, flights with uh, rail services in order to feed uh, hub airports. Um, I mean, what are the initiatives that uh, you think should be pushed in this European uh, railway year? Yes, railways is in fact not only, of course, very low carbon. Um, you brought up the percentages that it transports um, close to 8% of, of the passengers, but only uses less than 2% of the energy. Um, but it's also, I think, one of the few transport sectors or the only transport sector that has managed to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions over the last years. At the same time, we have been a steady growth in passengers. And in particular, the segment that has been growing is the passengers traveling high-speed trains. In addition to this, we see a real renaissance in night trains. The Commission has very recently presented its uh, long-term vision in the form of a strategy for smart and sustainable transport. 
in which we have set a very ambitious objective, doubling um, the passengers traveling on high speed. Uh, so this is definitely one area that we want to look at. But beyond this, um, we would like that the different transport modes uh, grow together so that there will be um, a seamless mobility where people can really go from A to B, uh, door to door, enjoying and using different ways, uh, transport ways, um, and rail should be one of them. And how to achieve this is, of course, using digital tools and coming to mobility as a service. And very essential part in this will be talking about ticketing, uh, improving the way railways are integrated with the other modes will inevitably mean opening up some of the data and allowing uh, others to sell railway tickets and that others can of course be um, airlines, it can also be ticketing platforms. And I think that's a very serious discussion we will have to have very quickly looking at rail ticketing aspects from a multimodal perspective. Uh, this was one of the elements that was left open in the fourth railway package. I mean, there was this possibility to, to take further measures on ticketing. And, and this is an important measure, I think, for, uh, for the effectiveness of the uh, liberalization of the industry. And, and, and we cannot forget that on uh, December uh, last year, so just a few weeks ago, the, the passenger market was fully liberalized in Europe after uh, more than 30 years of uh, uh, railway packages and reform of, of the industry. Um, so um, this is something that uh, somehow is, can be perceived as close, but, but do you think that this liberalization of, of the industry uh, should help to attain these objectives of, in, in terms of green deal, in terms of better services to passengers? Uh, do you think that liberalization is still a relevant policy uh, for railways? Well, um, everywhere the market has been opened for competition, we have seen the number of passengers grow. And there is several good examples in several European countries, in, in Italy, in Czechia, um, in Austria, in Germany on the regional level. Usually this competition brings about better service for the customers. It brings about um, new connections, it brings about uh, new services, um, and, and inevitably um, these railway companies trying to enter a new market do very closely study where there is a demand and where there is a need. And I think this is driving the quality, and this is the reason why it's important to do this market opening on a European scale so that companies can effectively offer their services anywhere in the EU and that there is this healthy competitive environment that puts customers, passengers at the center of what is being developed in terms of timetable, in terms of tickets, in terms of connections. Um, this is not an objective per se, because for us it's not about ownership, but it is really about driving quality services. That's why I think this is an important moment 
in the railway history, completing, of course, the work undertaken since many, many years. Uh, first railway package, second, third, and the fourth. Uh, I do not see a fifth railway package on the horizon, um, but this is now uh, about implementing it not only um, the letter of the legal text, but really in the spirit in which it was meant. And here, um, allow me to say also that um, we are quite concerned about the impact of COVID, uh, which is very economic, creating a lot of economic difficulties for the whole transport sector, for all railway companies, but in particular, of course, for new companies, um, smaller companies operating on a commercial basis who, who are definitely struggling. And we very much hope that there will be, after COVID, a quick rebound and um, lively competitive situation remaining so that we don't take 15 years step back in terms of um, the market situation for rail. Yeah, yeah, this is this is a concern I share. Um, there are a lot of asymmetries uh, in the way COVID is affecting transport, and, and particularly in the way uh, member states are reacting uh, and providing state aid. Uh, there are a lot of asymmetries between air transportation and railways, and uh, even asymmetries with, uh, between different railway companies, particularly incumbents and newcomers. So I guess this is a, an issue uh, that could have a deep impact on, uh, on the way the market evolves once it has been liberalized. Uh, and I think the other aspect that it's a big challenge uh, is um, cross-border um, trips for passengers, and this is somehow connected to night services. Uh, this is very hot in the debate, but at the same time, it poses very relevant challenges in terms, again, of state aids, of um, collaboration between different uh, railway undertakings to provide the services. Um, I don't know, do you have any comment on, on these night services, cross-border services? Is this a challenge? Do uh, you think it can deliver in terms of a uh, model shift? Yes, I would like um, I would like to look at this in particular. And that's a one, of course, element that is always very close um, to the heart for the commission. Because 96 or so percent of the railway services for passengers are still domestic today and a very large part are carried out under public service contract so primarily they are concerned with offering national services to to national clients but we need a european single market also for rail we cannot only talk about comparisons with aviation or comparisons with road transport when it suits us. We have to talk about it as well when it can be a bit uncomfortable for railways to face um, the reality that today it remains, um, there remain national boundaries that are obstacles for railways to operate. And they're not only of a technical nature, they're also questions of licenses, authorizations, languages, um, different, different rules. Um, and of course, the question um, of the public service obligations. Um, 
there is certainly always going to be subsidies for railway services that are not economically viable because we clearly see they are providing a, a public service um, in the societal interest and they cannot cover the cost. So that's entirely possible and fully legitimate under the European framework. And increasingly now for cross-border services or in particular for night train, we are confronted with questions of how to organize this when you have several member states involved, when this goes across borders and when in fact the journey consists of several different legs. And that's a real challenge for us as, a, as regulators. And we need to look into this more clearly. Um, there is a number of services that exist. They are fantastic. There is appetite, there is demand for it. Uh, but our regulatory framework might not be completely um, the most uh, enabling for these services to emerge. And that is something that we are looking at. Um, I'm very grateful in particular for the, the Netherlands uh, for having kicked off such a debate. And I'm sure in European Year of Rail, we will be able to present preliminary conclusions on this as part of the Commission's action plan for cross-border services after summer, sometime in September, October, probably. I would like to, to move to uh, freight transport. Um, in, I think this is the big challenge and the big opportunity for a, for a model shift. Um, if you look back 50 years ago, the situation in the US and the European Union was pretty much the same in terms of uh, model share. And railways were in both uh, territories very relevant for uh, the transport of freight. But over the 50 years, while the situation in the US has been pretty much stable, in Europe, the market share of freight went significantly down. Um, over the last years, it has been stabilized at around 18%, according to the uh, Rail Market Monitor, but it's not growing. Um, I mean, I think, again, this is the big opportunity in terms of, of uh, model shift. But uh, are we doing enough? I mean, is it maybe some really important change in policy necessary really to get uh, railways back for the transport of freight? I, I think so, yes. Because even though we have had this objective for a number of years, you're totally right. The model share has been stagnating. Well, first it has been declining, but recently it has been stagnating. And uh, this is not what we would like to see from a policy perspective. The European Green Deal is very clear. We want to shift a substantial share of goods transported on the road today onto railways or waterways as more sustainable modes of transport. And that's really a necessity because we don't have in the short term uh, zero emission vehicles for heavy goods on the road. They will become available one day, no doubt, but today they don't exist. So if we want to make a difference short term, it's in everyone's interest to transport more goods by rail. And here I think we can draw some very interesting lessons also from the situation uh, in COVID in spring last year, when all of a sudden much of the passenger traffic was reduced and the international traffic uh, 
practically stopped. And there was plenty of capacity and good quality train paths available. And rail freight started to be very punctual, started to attract new types of goods and functioned, in fact, really well. And I think this teaches us a lesson that we need to look at questions of quality and capacity for international train paths for rail freight. And that's, that's not, of course, in itself sufficient, but this was, for me, um, a very interesting finding and um, a lesson that we want to draw and that we want to work on. In addition to this, I think there will be a couple of breakthroughs from um, digital innovation. Um, finally, hopefully, a substantial deployment of the traffic management system, uh, European traffic management system, but also a real potential for reducing the costs of rail freight and for using data to track and trace where not only the trains, but the goods are, so that freight forwarders, shippers have trust in rail freight in terms of punctuality, in, term, in terms of reliability, um, which is also something that I think will help putting more goods on, on rail. I think that COVID, um, the, the COVID experience was very interesting, first of all, because it showed how resilient um, rail transport is, but also maybe the fact that um, better traffic management can significantly improve the situation because COVID at the end of the day reduced passenger traffic. And since there was more capacity in the, in the network, then freight could deliver better in terms of punctuality, in terms of uh, um, security and certainty in terms of arrival times. Uh, and I, I think this gives maybe a, a hint of one of the ways to improve uh, freight and transportation by rail. Huh? Maybe more capacity is necessary. Maybe that's one of the lessons uh, out from the COVID crisis in, in transportation. Yes, I, I tend to agree with you on this. It's a, it's a fact that in Europe, mostly it's mixed traffic on the lines and that the freight trains have often been the stepchildren, those that had to wait for everyone else before they could finally pass the border. And not only this, because more than half of the freight trains are international, they suffer most from the remaining interoperability problems. The fact that they have to stop at borders to change the local, to change the driver, to redo the braking sheets, to all the train composition. All, all this, of course, adds in terms of um, administrative burden, in terms of friction, and in terms of risks for delay. I've spent over the last uh, nine, 10 months, a considerable amount of my time monitoring the green lanes, namely the waiting times at borders. Uh, that's coming back again to last spring when member states decided to close their borders to halt the spread of COVID. Um, and that created massive traffic jams at the borders. Uh, at, and we put in place the green lanes saying there should be no waiting times of more than 15 minutes. The, Supply chains must be safeguarded, the goods must flow freely, 
Uh, and that was a very, very important thing for the European economy, but also for our supply chains. You will all remember when the supermarket shelf started emptying and there was no toilet paper to be found. This is when we put in place the green lanes. But then we tried to um, have green lanes also for other modes of transport. And then we started to look into more detail at border dwelling times for rail freight. And we realized that there are some borders where trains don't stop. So you don't even see that there is a border and you have other borders. And we know very well which ones where often we're talking not about 15 minutes, not about 30 minutes. We're talking about 150 minutes or even 250 minutes of um, frequent stopping at border. And that is, of course, something that we have to get rid of if we are serious about single European rail area, if we're serious about rail freight competing with road freight. I, I think rain lanes uh, are perfect example of how useful a uh, uh, European uh, railway area can be. And I think they are a very good sign for the future on how a more coordinated railway system at the European level can really deliver for for um, economy and for, for citizens. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much for uh, participating in this uh, conversation and, uh, and joining us for this uh, first podcast of uh, what I expect to be a very successful series on the European uh, Year of Rail 2021. So thank you again. Thank you very much. This was On the Right Track. Stay tuned for the next episode.